Hello, and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. My special guest today, I think, is one of the most interesting people in politics, Peter Tatchell. Peter, thank you very much for coming. Good to join you. I, I said there I thought you were one of the most interesting people in politics because you, you've never actually been formally in politics. You're, you're, you're not a member of parliament. No. But if I may say, you were ahead of the curve on anti-apartheid in the early 80s. With many others. Yeah. But you were also ahead of the curve in terms of campaigning for gay rights. You were also ahead of the curve in terms of seeing Robert Mugabe for what he is. And you're also ahead of the curve in Putin. Um, tell me what it's like to have been ahead on so many issues from the outside. <laughs> but of course, when you start ahead of the curve, you're a small, often demonized minority, uh -huh. or you're ignored. Uh -huh. So a lot of the campaigns I started were very much at the margins. And it took often many, many years to put them on the mainstream. Did you sometimes feel that you were banging your head against the brick wall? Yes, but I still had this optimistic, idealistic hope that uh -huh. you know, eventually um, the ideas I had and the evidence I had to support them uh -huh. would see the ideas through to fruition. So when I did stand for Parliament back in 1983 as the Labour candidate in the Bermondsey by-election, right. I stood for policies like a national minimum wage, uh -huh. um, a comprehensive equality act to protect everyone against discrimination, uh -huh. and for a negotiated political settlement in Northern Ireland. Now, that's considered mainstream now. Absolutely. But in the day, back then in 83, I was demonized for uh -huh. those ideas. Even the Labour Party said a national minimum wage and a comprehensive equality act was too radical. I'm so glad that all these years later, those things have finally become the mainstream. You, you mentioned that you stood for Parliament. You stood for Parliament as a candidate in Bermondsey in the mm. early 80s. And I think you also stood as a Green Party candidate. Is that right? That's right. For the first London Assembly elections in 2000. What was it like standing in Bermondsey? That was quite a controversial election, wasn't it? Yeah. It, well, commentators, you know, then and since say it's probably the probably wasn't the dirtiest, most violent and certainly the most homophobic election in Britain in the second half of the 20th century. I mean, I had, um, I was physically assaulted. Were you, were um, you openly gay at the time? Or? Well, I was openly gay on the doorsteps. Right. And I was advocating gay rights as part of the comprehensive policy uh, program. And were you being attacked by your opponents in this way? What, who, was, who was behind the homophobia? Most of it was from, well, the violent attacks, you know, the attempts to run me down the car, the attacks upon, really? attacks upon my flat, uh, the, the 30 or more violent assaults where I had my teeth smashed and things like that. During the by-election? Yeah. This Boy, was, I thought I had it tough as a YouTube <laughs> candidate in Clacton, but I never had any of that. But this was coming from the far right, from right. supporters of the National Front and right. other far right extremist groups. But of course, um, I did have against me uh, the former Labour MP for the seat, Bob Mellish, right. and the leader of local council, John O'Grady, who both played up not only a homophobic campaign, uh, but also, um, you know, misrepresented what I was standing for. I was, I was trying to defend the local community against property developers who wanted to carve up the Bermondsey Riverside for luxury flats and <laughs> big office developments. And I said, well, there has to be a deal for local people. Mm -hmm. This is a mm -hmm. very deprived part of London. Mm -hmm. And the people there have suffered so much over so many generations, they deserve a slice of the pie mm -hmm. when this area is redeveloped. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that was up against the London Dockland Development Corporation, uh, mm -hmm. which Michael Hesseltine set up, mm -hmm. and Bob Mellish became vice chair of. So um, You very I, much felt you were taking on the establishment. Absolutely. And I think that is part of the reason why I was so viciously attacked How in the press. How um, which... and, and also, of course, uh, the Liberals um, you know, got their 
piece in as well, um, they played up homophobia. The liberals went around with the pel male liberal canvassers went around with the pel sticker saying, I've been kissed by Peter Tatchell. Or, and wasn't there a leaflet put out saying the straight choice with yes, a deliberate yes. nudge, nudge, innuendo? And, and a leaflet, which queen will you vote for with a picture of myself and Her Majesty? And said I was a traitor, I was a communist. And this was official party? Well, at the time we thought that, and this leaflet gave my home address and phone number and said, if you want to, go and tell Peter Tatchell what you think of him. And this led to a spate of bricks and bottles through my windows, oh, graffiti on the door, mm. and violent assaults in the street, uh, including two attempts to run me down in a car. Now, at the time, we thought that was a leaflet put out by the National Front or some other far-right group. But according to uh, a liberal insider who subsequently spoke to me, mm -hmm. he claims, I can't prove, but he claims it was put out by a Liberal Party Dirty Tricks team. Wow. Wow. What's, what would you say to get through all of that and to campaign over the years, what would you say your sort of core philosophy? Is it a belief in the individual, a belief in individual freedom? What, 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 how do you, what, what, what motivates you to, to, to take on these campaigns and put yourself through that? Well, I'd see myself as a democratic green socialist, mm -hmm. um, but not a state socialist. A democratic green socialist, yeah, okay. But, but not a state socialist. Okay. Um, not someone who believes in the all-powerful state. Right. Um, someone who's very strong on human rights and liberties, individual mm -hmm. freedom. Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, most of my work over recent years or the last 20 years has been around the general human rights angle, mm -hmm. which embraces equality and diversity, but also social justice. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've argued for alternatives to austerity, how to fund alternatives to austerity, um, how to make Britain a more inclusive society. And, you know, I think, you know, the very rich people in our society um, they have a duty and responsibility, if they love this country, to act in ways that support the country and to support all the people within it. And of course, if they're a non-DOM who are resident yeah. here because they find it convenient to locate themselves here, um, they, may not, they may not share that, that patriotic vision. <laughs> well, that's, that is true, but for the, for the homegrown <laughs> capitalists, yeah. uh, let's we say, um, if I can quote um, or misquote or paraphrase Spider-Man, uh, with great wealth comes great responsibility. Um, it, talking about individual rights today, I mean, you've won all these battles in the past, but looking at individual rights today and the campaign for rights today, do you think there's a slight danger that the campaign for individual rights has moved away from, well, the rights of the individual, more towards people being encouraged to identify as being part of a collective group, part of a minority group, and that this sort of emergence of identity politics actually undermines the struggle for individual liberty and individual freedom. If instead of granting someone rights because they're a person and therefore equal, you grant people rights because they belong to a defined group, isn't there a danger that actually you start to regress and some of these battles go into reverse? Well, I certainly think there is a danger. Um, but having said that, I think the reason why identity politics evolved was because mainstream politics wasn't addressing or wasn't addressing adequately the specific needs of poor people, black people, LGBT people, and so on. So in those circumstances, those people had to organize mm -hmm. uh, as an identity group to you know, claim their place at the table. But, 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 but there is a danger that identity politics becomes very sort of like balkanized. You know, yeah. Everybody in their own separate group. Yeah. And forgetting 
our common humanity. So, so I've always said identity politics must be qualified by our recognition of our common humanity. But if you move into the sort of radical intersectional space, in effect, you're encouraging people to see themselves as part of a sort of hierarchy of, of victimhood. Isn't that slightly demeaning to you know, young black Britons if they're encouraged to see themselves as victims rather than as you know, the world's their oyster, they're citizens of a great country. Yes, there are injustices, they're former injustices, there probably are injustices today. But isn't there a danger that intersectionality becomes part of that sort of low expectation, the idea that you, you don't value people for what they are. You start to, you, you almost turn the Martin Luther King idea on its head. Instead of, instead of judging people on their character, you start to define them on the basis of things that they're born with. Well, that would be very wrong and mistaken. Um, but clearly, there is a problem still of racism in our society. Mm -hmm. and It's understandable that black people want to band together to challenge that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I think also um, black people and LGBT people, elderly people, single people, all different groups, they've all got a claim to redress some injustices they face, mm -hmm. but let's try and work together mm -hmm. rather than doing things all separately. So, for example, with the LGBT plus movement, um, I've been very reluctant to go on the road of specifically arguing for LGBT plus rights. I've always said, let's put LGBT plus rights in the mainstream of human rights and let's do it in ways that will benefit everyone. And you've been really criticised yeah, for that. Yeah. So, for example, on relationship with sexual education in schools, um, I never argued just for LGBT-inclusive relationship with sexual education. I said there's a problem for all young kids, whatever their sexuality or gender identity. Um, we've got unacceptable levels of teenage pregnancies, abortions, HIV and other sexual infections. Although, although to be fair, I think... The situation is better today than it was 10, 20 years oh, ago. Oh, it is better, but still, there's still great room for improvement. But mm -hmm. the point is that all young people are affected by these issues. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's reframe relationship protected education in a way that can mm -hmm. benefit everyone, mm -hmm. not just LGBT plus people, but mm -hmm. everyone. And that creates a community of interest between, quote, straight and uh, LGBT plus yeah. people. Okay. Um, a question that I ask everyone I interview, and I ask it because I think it's actually hugely indicative of people's general philosophy. Um, and it says, do you, do you think all cultures are of equal worth? Um, I think all cultures have their own individuality. But I don't think you can say that, um, I don't know, democracy is the same as totalitarianism. You can't say that freedom is the same as slavery. But I don't quite mean yeah. the country's political economy. Do you think that, do you think Western culture is of equal worth to the culture that you find in you know, Saudi Arabia or uh, pre-modern societies, um, Aboriginal societies in Australia. I know you've got a great interest in Aboriginal rights. Mm. Do, you, do you think that all cultures are of equal worth? Or do you think actually some cultures are better than others, better at sustaining scientific acquisition of knowledge, better at giving people equality and better at valuing people for what they are rather than who, they're, who, they're, who their family is? Do you, do you think that cultural relativism is, is misguided or, or do you think actually there is, you know, some cultures are better than others? No, I've, I've been a very fierce critic of cultural relativism because yeah. I believe in the principle of universal human rights, mm -hmm. that all human beings on this planet, whatever their culture, politics or nationality, they all deserve to be free and equal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've been very critical of those who use political or religious reasons to mm -hmm. deny their citizens mm -hmm. equal rights. But I think I would say that we need to be very careful about 
the idea of you know posing it as the West versus the rest. Yeah, I mean, Western's, you think you think Western values are actually often universal when we talk about. Well, I, well, I, I wouldn't frame it in terms of Western values. Yeah. I'd frame it in terms of universal values. Yeah. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights has been collectively agreed by the nations of the world. Mm -hmm. And in its writing, some of the best contributions came from non-Western people. Right? The, the delegates from India and Libya made great contributions to that document. Um, so I think we need to be really careful because there are people in every society and culture who share the same kind of human rights and equality values that we do. They may be in a minority, they may be out of power, but it's not that they are different or exceptional or unaccepting of the values that we share here. These are values that people all over the world in different cultures share. Do you think? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I, I, well, let's take Iran. You know, Iran is a theocratic quasi-fascist state, uh, which jails trade unionists, um, writers, lawyers, journalists, students, mm -hmm. ethnic minorities, religious minorities, LGBT people, they're all under the cosh in Iran. But there is a whole subsection of Iranian society that rejects all those values. Mm -hmm. They're currently out of power, they're crushed by the police state methods of the Iranian regime, mm -hmm. but they share exactly the same values about women's rights, mm -hmm. rights of LGBT people, ethnic and cultural diversity. Mm -hmm. So I feel you know, in solidarity with them. And I don't mm. therefore dismiss all Iranian culture because mm. that would be just very, um, you know, a monolithic view, uh, which, which is not represented by the heterogeneity of Iranian society. It's interesting. And if you define Western culture as accepting individual liberty and freedom, you have to you have the problem of then going back 50 years to an age where actually there were some very Western people who who didn't believe in equal treatment of gay people and equality between gender. Well, even more yeah. recent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. So, yeah. But I mean, I. I would argue that one of the reasons why so many people from outside the West want to come and live in the West is not just because you can be materially better off in the West. There's, there's something about Europe and North America. And yes, Australia and to some extent other countries, but there's something about those societies that, that makes them places that people from outside those places want to move to. And I think it's to do with the, the freedom and the opportunities, economic opportunity, but I, I suspect also it's more than just economics. And I suspect that there's something about, you know, the United States today that appeals to middle-class Iranians mm -hmm. as much as it does to, you know, middle-class Brits. Yeah, well, I remember doing a TV program not long ago with the Muslim activist Salma Yaqub, and she said very, very clearly, despite all the criticisms and faults, you know, Britain is the best place in the world for a Muslim person to live. More rights, more freedoms. And she's absolutely right. That, but, but also, I want to qualify and say that, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the Western contribution, but you go back to the antecedents of human rights, you look at the Ashoka Declaration in India, uh, was it two centuries before Christ? Um, you look at um, Emperor Cyrus in uh, what is now Iran, uh, the Cyrus Declaration, I think about the 5th century BC. These are, these are fragments of ideas about human rights, which existed centuries ago before Western culture. Sitting in exactly that chair, I had Maya Tuzi, who's a well-known internet um, of Iranian heritage, born in Iran, mm made in South London, and he made exactly that point. Mm. He, 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 fascinating, fascinating. Um, you organised the first, was it the first ever Pride March in 1972? Well, I co-organised it. You co-organised With about 30 other people. With about 30 uh -huh. other people. How many people were on the march? 
Three and seven hundred and a thousand. So pretty small. Very small. And how many people would have been? I mean, there's no longer a Pride March, is there? There are there are lots everywhere. Well, there is at the main London Pride. How many um, people would attended that? Well, that th- sadly, thanks to the Mayor of London, Westminster City Council, and the Metropolitan Police, they only allow thirty thousand people. Right. But in the late nineties, when it was less restricted by the city authorities, there were over a hundred thousand. Why do they restrict it? Um, they claim convenience and disruption and yeah, traffic. And yeah. But, but they never say that to, it, is it, is they it, never say that to the march. Isn't that quite flattering to you? You started something that had 700 people on it. Yeah. And today it's so big that London, London's authorities can't quite cope with it because of... Well, you know, they could. They coped a million people on the, the march about Brexit. They've coped hundreds of thousands on the marches yeah. for the NHS. Yeah. There's no reason. This is just... Uh, but, but overall, I would say that what is really significant to me, looking at the long trajectory, um, I began campaigning for LGBT plus rights in 1969 at the age of 17, inspired by hearing the reports of the first gay rights protest in New York. This was Stonewall? No, shortly after Stonewall, some weeks after Stonewall. And I remember I had no reference point because there was no, in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia, there was no LGBT movement at all. I imagine Melbourne was pretty conservative (laughs) then. I think it is now. No, no, it's not now. Not now. But... um, there were no LGBT organisations or counselling uh-huh. services, switchboards, nothing. Uh-huh. Um, so I did my own one-person activism. But I remember saying to myself, because I had no reference point, if looking at the black civil rights movement, if black people are an oppressed minority, then so are LGBT people. Um, if black people have a claim for equal justice, then so do we. Uh-huh. And modelled on the experience of the black civil rights movement, I calculated at 17 in 1969, it would probably take about 50 years to win legal equality in Western countries like the United States, mm-hmm. Australia, mm-hmm. and Britain. And it was, that was a guesstimate, but it's turned out roughly to be right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you go back and think, until 1999, Britain had by volume the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world. Some of them dating back centuries. Here we are, two decades later, and we have some of the best laws. Mm-hmm. This has got to be probably the most successful social mm-hmm. reform campaign mm-hmm. in British history. Mm-hmm. Never have so many laws affecting a particular community been repealed in such a short space of time. Yeah. Um, talking about the future, and it's a slightly delicate area, but I think it needs to be addressed. I, I saw some footage from, I think it was Walton Forest or, mm-hmm. or, or somewhere like that. Um, and I'll, I'll play a clip um, uh, uh, to show viewers. And it appeared to show someone dressed in traditional Muslim Islamic garb, Mm -hmm. shouting abuse at a local pride march. think that this indicates that there is a problem between a lot of orthodox Muslim opinion, and bear in mind, Islam is an orthodox religion, so between mainstream Muslim opinion and the um, equal treatment agenda that you've been pushing for? Well, it certainly is true that surveys of Muslim communities across Britain tend to have a lower rate of support for equal rights for LGBT plus people. And sometimes overt hostility. Yes, yes, yes. And that particular incident did involve just one woman yeah. in, in a fairly heavily Muslim populated area. But I'm told that some Muslim people 
on that march route also applauded and expressed uh, support. So I think it's, we have to be very careful not to generalise and to demonise the whole Muslim community oh, of course, of course. As, as being homophobic. And I think things are changing. But then there's, there's the Birmingham School. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, you've got a, a you know, this is, a, this is public money. So yeah. the state has, I would argue, a legitimate interest to make sure that it's spent yeah. teaching a certain set of values. The school is clearly trying to ensure that the citizens in that school are prepared to be young Brits. Mm -hmm with all that entails in, mm -hmm. in, in this day and age. And there seems to be a concerted opposition to that by some parents who, for religious reasons, um, are simply saying they're not willing to have their children taught that, you know... Gay people exist. Gay, gay people are, and are entitled to equal yeah. treatment under the yeah. law. How, how do we deal with that? Well, it, the protests in Birmingham have been primarily spearheaded by some Muslims. Um, but there have been other protests elsewhere where Jewish and Christian uh, traditionalists have also been involved. It is a worrying trend because what is particularly shocking to me is that all these people who protest about teaching that LGBT people exist, they would be horrified if their school didn't acknowledge their own faith communities. Mm -hmm. They insist on rights for themselves, mm -hmm. but they're not prepared to give them to others. And that, to me, is very, very worrying. Do you think this is going to be a pr problem long-term for free schools? I mean, my instinct is to be a passionate supporter of free schools. Mm. And, you know, I'm generally in favour of schools being run by Church of England and, and what have you, because I, I can't help noticing that the further away from the state a school is, the better run it tends to be. Mm. But then I'm, I'm slightly worried. What happens if someone wants to run a free school that then has a very orthodox approach to, to, to these issues. Don't, can you see a conflict coming? Well, this is the reason why I'm opposed to free schools, because so often they are religiously motivated. They shelter uh, the pupils in a religious bubble. They don't, pupils don't mix with others. They don't learn about the wider society. They have a very narrow religious orthodoxy. You, so so I'm, I think there has to be, if free schools are going to exist, the same mandatory requirements on relationship with sex education, about um, cultural diversity, has to be in, required and made mandatory in those schools, as well as in the state sector mm -hmm. and the voluntary aid sector. Would it be enough if the free schools guaranteed that they would teach what you might call the, the Darwinian truths, which is that, you know, the world around us is a product of evolution, not creation? Would that, mm -hmm. would that, would that be enough, do you think? No. I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, it's very important that religious schools acknowledge there are other people of other faiths and what those faiths are and the people of no faith. I understand there's a coherence to your position. I'm not arguing against it. But if the state is to say you know, any religious school can be religious, but it has to teach these values, it has to teach these, these things, are you not at the same time approaching, in effect, a situation where the state can insist that people who come and live in this country from other cultures and other societies also have to accept the Darwinian truths and those basic freedoms. And that you're in effect saying, in order to become a, a, a valid citizen, you have to subscribe to this worldview. Well, I think there's a slight difference. I mean, I think if the state is funding education in particular, the mm -hmm. state funding, whether it be full, a full state school or a state-aided school, Mm -hmm. then clearly those schools have to comply with the laws of the land and the agreed parameters about teaching equality and diversity and respect for those mm -hmm. who are different. Mm -hmm. um, I think when someone comes to this country, 
Um, clearly, the citizenship tests that are currently in force, which I must admit many British people would find very difficult to pass, but I think they're trying to encourage an understanding of the British way of life and the kinds of democratic human rights values mm. that we hold. I think that's perfectly right and proper. Yeah. Whether people should actually be barred, I think that's probably a step too far. Well, I, I'm always slightly puzzled. When I was an MP, I got invited to go and give talks in schools mm. as part of their curriculum. They needed to teach children about British values. And I, I was slightly puzzled by this. And I asked the teacher what they wanted me to talk about British values. And they said, fairness. And I, find me a country that doesn't believe in fairness. And they said, the rule of law. Find me a country that doesn't believe in the rule of law. Uh, you know, a country has its exceptionalisms by definition, mm -hmm. otherwise it wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. And each country you go to has its own self-image. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that you can ever encapsulate that in an official statement or an official document. In fact, I, I, I suspect these things are by their definition self-defining, impossible for, for, for an official yeah. to, to prescribe. You're absolutely right. I mean, I sometimes get invited to talk about British values in schools. <laughs> and I say, no, British values, we do have British values, but they're not exclusively British. They're yeah. shared by people yeah. all over the world. And I mentioned yeah. the case in Iran, but you could yeah. go to Russia, you know, there are people in some of the worst, most totalitarian states who share the yeah. same values. They're yeah. not unique to us. Yeah. And I think it's much better to frame the issue in terms of universal values, mm -hmm. because then people who have come, who are studying, you know, pupils in the school who come from different cultures, then feel included. Have you ever come across a, a Roman poet called Lucretius? Uh, yes, I'm not very knowledgeable though. Well, I, I, the reason I say this is it sounds a bit random, but so often, I mean, what we've been talking about is in effect modernity and this idea that, you know, we've arrived at a certain period in human history where we've got a certain set of insights as to the world and how it's created that, and you read Lucretius and he, he, he's got this extraordinary, I think it's a six part book. And, you know, he's basically, you realize when you read it, modernity and this, what we today call the modern worldview existed 2000 years ago. Yeah, 2000 years before Darwin, he talks about, without ever using the word evolution, evolution. You know, 2000 years before the invention of the electron microscope, he explains how all matter is a product of atoms. It's quite breathtaking to read it and to realize that actually, you, you talk about universal truths. Um, I suspect we're not the first people, and there, there has been plenty of dark age um, in between, but we're not the first civilization that's reached this point. Um, but, and who can say whether things might go into reverse? It, 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 it you, was very fragile. You, you think about Germany, you know, one of the great European cultures, yet descended into the barbarity oh, okay. of Nazism. I mean, the, the, the Roman Republic, which yeah. achieved this extraordinary standard of living and, 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 and civilization, and then it became an empire, the strongman dictator took over. We think of Rome today in terms of conquest and, and emperors and, and, and the gathering of slaves. Um, it, it, it was a little bit more special than that. Changing tack slightly, um, one area where I don't think you and I are going to agree um, is is the Europe question. What do you? How did you vote in the referendum? I voted for Remain. Okay. But I did argue that the EU also needs reform. Do you think it can be reformed? Yes. How do you think it could change? What would be your optimal European Union? Well, I think that. There is certainly the capacity or possibility that European leaders, um, many of which have some degree of disagreement with the way in which the European Union has functioned and operates, that um, they can come together and devise a program for reform to make it more democratic, more accountable, more transparent. Um, I think the idea that we have this super state um, 
that doesn't frighten me. You know, I think the idea of nations collaborating with each other to solve common problems like defense and security, terrorism, you know, pollution, corporate tax avoidance, all those things are going to be more easily tackled on an international scale. And of course, it'd be great if we had global agreement, but at least in the interim, the European Union has showed that within its framework, it can get consensus and agreement. And that's a very powerful block, which is you know, able to exercise a lot of influence in the world. I remember 20-something years ago, listening to Jacques Delors saying that in response to popular dissatisfaction, I think the Danes had voted against Maastricht, they were going to reform. They were going to devolve power downwards. I think they even gave it a rather clumsy title, subsidiarity, mm. um, a, a phrase drawn from uh, Catholic teachings. Mm. Um, wonderful irony. I can't think of a single power that was passed back down to the member mm. states. Um, Tony Blair, when he became, I mean, for me, the real turning point on Europe is when Tony Blair talked about the Lisbon agenda and mm. how this was going to deregulate and decentralize control. And he said that by 2010, Europe would be the most dynamic part of the global economy. And you, you look at what happened over the intervening period. Do you, do you really think that it's achievable? Or don't you think that actually, like all, all oligarchies, it's, it's closed cartel, that the, the people who run it aren't going to surrender power voluntarily? It's like the Habsburg Empire. Mm. It, it, it holds together a polygot Europe with a, a parasitic elite at the top. And they're never going to voluntarily make the changes they need to. Well, I can see why we have a commission and a parliament. But I would like to see us move more towards the parliament having greater powers. And I'm not afraid of a European government um, ruling by consensus and agreement. There may be some need for some veto powers for individual states or in certain circumstances or certain, not just, not just simple majority voting, but perhaps two-thirds majority or whatever. So more but, power to Guy, what's his name, the, 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 the leader of the European Parliament? No. Well, <laughs> well, well yes, I, th I think the, the European Parliament is a democratic body. It doesn't have proper powers. Um, it, it has some powers, but not enough. Um, the other thing I'd like to see is thinking about um, moving the European Union away from a... a a collaboration of nations into a confederation of regions. So possibly having, um, you know, Scotland and Wales and English regions having direct input into Europe, bypassing Westminster. Um, I think if you if you saw Europe as a, as a federation of regions, so deconstructing the nations. Well, yes. Well, the nations will still exist, but if you had a regional based representation in Europe and regional um, you know, powers, it would bring the whole European Union much closer to people rather than, you know, at the moment, it does seem very remote. Not, I'm not saying that's the only solution, but I think a regional-based European Union would you know, help bridge that distance, that gap. Who would define those regions? Well, yeah, I mean, it could, could be based upon the, the current um, European parliamentary constituencies, which basically, you know, divide up England into several regions. Do you think people identify with those regions? Do you think people in Essex think I'm a East of Englander or I'm from Essex? Well, I think that um, there is an evolving... The trend in, in, in the UK is to greater devolution and decentralisation. People, you know, value local. You know, so in Yorkshire, there's a quite a strong movement in Yorkshire yeah identification 
As I was in Ireland a couple of weeks yeah. ago and people, you see the, the county flags everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of wonder if Yorkshire had direct representation at the European Union level and had voting powers and so on, that might help um, reduce the sort of the sense of disconnect. Don't you think these ideas are 20 years too late? I mean, don't you think you know, most people in Yorkshire now want out? I don't think it's too late. I don't say for a moment that I've got the right ideas, yeah. but I do think that the European Union is, you know, a viable option. And I look at all the benefits, you know. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying the European Union alone has guaranteed the peace in Europe for the last 50 years, but it sort of has. Do you think so? Absolutely. An army of bureaucrats in Brussels stopping Germany invading France? Well, <laughs> no, but, but, but the, the social consensus across borders has helped break down those national rivalries and um, hostilities. Don't you think it's inflamed them? I mean, surely, you know, I heard uh, last summer that German campers are reluctant to go to Greece now because of the hostility caused by, by what people see as the Troika imposing austerity. Has yeah, it driven right. Europeans yeah. apart? Yeah, I don't agree with what the Troika did on austerity on Greece. You know, yeah. I, I totally disagree with that. And that's, that's one of the issues yeah. that needs to but be isn't reformed. But isn't that the danger for you? You end up, without intending to, being on the side of the technocrats, the Troika, of Goldman Sachs. Mm. Um, actually, this is, this is why Euroscepticism wins. Because you know, ultimately, you've either, you're either in favour of the establishment which is a respectable position, or you're on the side of a growing body of people. There's, there's no middle ground anymore. Well, that's why I'm saying give more power to the parliament and reduce the power of the bureaucracy. Mm. And the European Parliament has come up with so many brilliant ideas. And you know, I don't want to go through the, the entire checklist, but, you know. Just give us just a, a few. I mean, look at the benefits of the European Union, the massive extension of consumer rights. If your flight Don't they have consumer rights in Australia? Well, yes, but... Lots of the rights we now have in Britain were not given to us by successive Labour and Conservative governments. They were given to us through being part of the European Union. But isn't that something around the Western world over the past 30 or 40 years, more rights have been conferred on the population? And it just so happens that we've been in the EU at that time. The idea that we couldn't have those rights outside the European Union is, 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 is for the birds. I mean, we, we could quite credibly like Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, uh, many other countries around the world, um, be outside the European Union and have those rights. Those rights aren't contingent upon having a, 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 a commission in Brussels, are they? Um, no, but the fact is that over the last 40 years of membership, we have um, secured lots of rights that no homegrown government gave us. So uh, you look at you know simple things like, um, as I mentioned, consumer rights, greater rights for employees, um, the abolition of roaming charges. When you go with a mobile phone to Europe in the European Union, you don't pay roaming charges anymore. No visas. Um, you, know, you look at um, a whole range of issues around women's rights, maternity leave, um, all the, lots, so many of Hang these on. things. Didn't that, come... Come in, didn't that come in under our own law in the 70s? Oh, well, to some extent, yes, to some extent, but it's been augmented and, 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 and increased and improved thanks to the European Union. And, you know, I, you know, I think if you look at, um, you know, the, the overall balance of rights that we have or, you know, benefits we have or protections we have, 
Of course, many have been brought in by our governments here in the UK, yeah, yeah. but many have also been brought in by uh, thanks to the European Union. And there, there are issues that our single government cannot by itself resolve. So, Such as pollution, you know, pollution, um, you know, carbon emissions, you know, these are issues that no one government can resolve. And I think the European Union has. But does, does every country things better? Does every country therefore need to join the European Union to solve them? I mean, surely you can solve them at an international level rather than a supranational level. I mean, I would argue well, that actually countries that have been more innovative in terms of public policy and innovation and formation actually have been those outside the European Union. Doesn't the European Union actually encourage a sort of cocky, smug, Eurocentric groupthink so that actually on, on a number of issues, Europeans don't take the public policy initiative, whereas other countries that we sometimes condescendingly regard as, as less advanced are actually catching up. Well, yes, it's, it's, not, it's not like these countries have done everything and the European Union has done everything. It's, mm. it's, it's a bit of both. But I think, you know, we're not going to be able to solve the climate emergency yeah. without international collaboration. And when the United States is quite clear not going to be part of that, China's done some work but still driving yeah. its feet. Um, India's way behind the curve. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that we have the European Union mm -hmm. setting down parameters to try and improve things and, and will improve things, I think is fantastic. You know, I, I, I was recently swimming. You know, the beach I went to 20 or 30 years ago, you couldn't swim, it was full of sewage. The European Union said you have to upgrade the standards of your beaches. Mm -hmm. And it's thanks to the European Union we've done that. So people are not, you know, getting dysentery when they go swimming anymore. Um, the water's still very cold. <laughs> well, I blame the has... European Union for not doing something like that. <laughs> yeah, now, exactly. I, don't, I, I don't want to bang on about the European Union too much, but if there was a second referendum, you would vote to rejoin? Re re remain and okay. to reform. But, I mean, presumably when the second referendum, if it comes, it'll be yeah. to get back in rather than to... Who knows? Who knows? And would you, would you support joining the Euro? Uh, not at this stage, no. Would you support Schengen, a, a common... Um, Common border, in effect? Um, probably not at this stage, but I think both those should be on the okay. table. And they, both, both of them are examples of where okay. we need renegotiation. Okay. I mean, and, 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 and there are other countries in the European Union who want to renegotiate them. Yeah. And there are opposition parties in the European Union who would definitely want to renegotiate them. And I think if all these different disparate groups got together and set a, a reform program, I think it's absolutely doable. Okay. Um, changing tax slightly, Boris, what do you think of Boris? Well, to his credit, um, he was the first senior conservative to back same-sex marriage. He was. So he, was. he has to get the credit for that. Uh, albeit, He's actually quite liberal. Yeah. Uh, albeit, it was only when I ambushed him at the <laughs> London Pride Parade in 2010. Was that you? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. Um, Is that the famous photo where he's got the Stetson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to show you a clip yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm standing next to him with a placard. <laughs> I think it says, David and Sam Cameron can marry, gays can't. And I said to Dobros, here you are at the Pride Parade, you're most welcome. Are you going to support an end to this ban on same-sex marriage? And he fluffed and, you know, guffed a bit, and then, but eventually he said we, yes. We sort of did something similar to get him to sign. We were campaigning for an in-out referendum, mm -hmm. and he was in Romford, and not me, but others in the campaign for a referendum, the People's Pledge, we called it, kind of ambushed him to sign a piece of paper saying he supported an in-out referendum. It, it sounds remarkably similar. Yeah. A bit of bluster and a bit of and he signed it. <laughs> and then I'll tell you, the, the follow-up story was on the following Monday, just by chance, I'd been invited to a reception at City Hall mm -hmm. for 
I don't know, London achievers or whatever. And uh, Boris was talking about, as he finished his speech, he said, well, I think I've said all I need to say. Unless there's anybody else who needs to say anything, I, I think we might wind up. And so I jumped up on the stage. Yes, well, thank you, Boris. Um, I just want to say on behalf of everyone here, we are so appreciative of your support for same-sex marriage. And the whole audience broke out in cl clapping. <laughs> and from that moment onwards, you couldn't go backwards. Uh, I, I, I suspect, he, I mean, he's, I think he's pretty socially liberal. Right? Yes, I, I mean, I, he has said some pretty nasty, bad things in the past uh, about LGBT people, but I think um, he hasn't exactly apologised, but I don't think he probably shares. I mean, to be fair, he's a, he, he has spent a career as a journalist. Yeah. And I think if you were to say, take every British columnist and hold them to account for things that they had written in the past. Um, yeah, they, they... But this wasn't like in the 1950s. This was in the 1990s, I, I yeah, believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's... I mean, people are still... In, in the LGBT community, people are still saying, well, you know, we're prepared to forgive and move on, but you, you need to say what you're going to do now. And one of the big issues, of course, is compensation for gay and bisexual men who were prosecuted under historic anti-gay laws, many of whom went to prison, uh, had, had large fines or basically ended up their lives ruined. They lost what, their jobs, When their did homes. the court stop prosecuting? Well, the, 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 the full decriminalisation only took place in England and Wales in 2003. I remember in, in the 80s reading tabloid, every week there'd be a tabloid expose yeah. of a Church of England vicar and there'd be hypocrite. And, yeah. and you think, actually, these are poor people. I mean, mm. these were people who presumably were privately living their quiet yeah. lives who suddenly well, found themselves... I'll, I'll, give you an example. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, Stephen Close, was a young soldier in the army, exceptionally talented, mm -hmm. highly respected. Mm -hmm. uh, at the age of, I think, 20, it was discovered that he was gay. He was court-martialed, given a six-month prison sentence in Colchester, a very harsh prison. Six months in prison? Yeah, yeah. In, in what, what year was this? 82. Wow. Um, because it, Homosexuality wasn't decriminalised in the armed forces until I think 1994. Mm -hmm. um, he not only served you know, a very harsh prison sentence in Colchester and got, suffered a lot of abuse from other inmates and sure. guards, but when he came out from prison, he couldn't get a job because he had to produce references and account for what he previously did. Can you imagine harbouring that sense of well, disgrace? Let me, let, let me finish the story. His paper said, this honourably discharged with disgrace, and he could not get any decent paid job. He, he, he lived on benefits or did low yeah. paying sweeping jobs for 30 years living in dire poverty. It's only in the last few years that he's finally managed to find an employer willing to take him on. How bizarre. I mean, his life, he, he was on, driven to a mental breakdown uh, and was very lucky not to commit suicide. Yeah. And he is just one of 100,000 gay and bisexual men who were convicted under Britain's historic anti-gay laws between 1885 when Oscar, uh, the Oscar Wilde law came in, and uh, 2003, when criminalisation... How many cases like that would you say there are at the moment? Hundreds, uh, uh, thousands, I mean, tens still, of thousands? People still living. Yeah. Probably between fifteen and 20,000. Okay. So a significant number, but, but not beyond the ability of the state to address. No. And obviously some just maybe had £60 fines. You think about it. In 1990, two lesbians... Uh, gave each other a goodnight kiss at Victoria Station when was going back to Brighton. They got arrested, charged under the Public Order Act with behaviour like to cause harassment, alarm or distress, got a criminal conviction and a fine of £60. Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's the 
complications that would arise from having the criminal conviction that would be so yeah i wonder what implications it would have for mortgage applications yeah, work right, exactly. traveling to america yeah. i mean and just the stigma yeah. um you know and yeah. yeah. um, my point is these things are relatively recent yeah changing tax slightly you stood for parliament a couple of times you like once, once okay um but you've been involved in two different parties. Yeah. Ditto. I've been involved in a couple of different parties. I have a particularly sceptical view of the political process and some of the people in it and what mm -hmm. animates people. What, what's your view on the state of politics? Do you, are you encouraged by the Labour Party? Are you disappointed with the Labour Party? What, the Liberals? What, how, do you, how do you see politics going? I'm incredibly depressed by the state of politics. But as an eternal optimist, <laughs> I can see the Sunday upland. Uh -huh. um, you know, I think it's, it's unconscionable that we operate under the first-past-the-post system, which distorts the election so much. We never used to until 1882, when they gave the working man the vote. Yeah. They created the first-past-the-post yeah. system. It's a complete myth that yeah. it's a traditional British yeah. system. And, of course, it works well when there's two parties. But we now live in a seven-party universe, yeah. and it doesn't work. I mean, uh, you think about... Labour's um, election victory in 2005, where they won 35% of the votes, but 55% of the seats. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the same is applied yeah, to I the Conservatives. You think about, there hasn't been a single governing party in power in Britain with a majority of the popular vote since 1931. Yeah. That's outrageous. Yeah. You know, the charters and the suffragettes must be turning in their graves. And I, I just generally think, I'm as a free market libertarian, if you didn't have choice and competition, if in a town or a village where you lived, there were only two restaurants or, or, or two bakers or, or two of anything, you wouldn't get good customer service. I mean, the yeah. reality is in most seats, you don't even have that. You've got a monopoly system in, yeah. in most constituencies. Um, I'm conscious of your time. You've been very generous with it. A, a couple of final issues from Israel. Um, have you been a critic of Israel in the past? What, what, what? Yes. Surely Israel actually is, for someone who believes in equal treatment, particularly for gay people, surely there's, there's no better country in the Middle East to be, to be gay or to be a woman or, or well, to be anyone mm -hmm. than Israel. Surely it's, yes. it's the best country in the Middle East by a long chalk. Yeah, in terms of uh, democracy and um, civil liberties, uh, Israel's head and shoulders above its Arab neighbours. There's no doubt about that but it's built upon the dispossession of the Palestinian people from their lands and inbuilt discrimination even within Israel against its own Arab citizens. But don't Jewish people need their own state? Well, I would hope that Jewish people everywhere can live in freedom and equality wherever they but are. But hang on, 2,000 years of non-Jewish oppression of Jews, doesn't that rather... I went to the Yad Vashem in Jerusalem and you know, I'd heard the arguments. But until I had actually seen that, and then I came out of the Yad Vashem and I, I saw Jerusalem in front of me, and then I understood. You know, given that experience, I, I can understand why Israel feels the way it does. They yeah. need a homeland. Yeah, I totally agree. Given the historic persecution of Jewish people, they need safety and security. And I'm not in principle against uh, a Jewish homeland. But as I said, I would hope that Jews everywhere in every country are protected and defended. Uh, what I find difficult with, about Israel is the fact that it has been built upon the expulsion of Palestinians and the continuing discrimination against Israeli Arab citizens. The All Report um, some years ago 
was commissioned by the, the government there, and it, it was absolutely categorical. There was institutional discrimination against Arab people who live in the state of Israel. I, I think I'm right in saying as well that the, the state of Israel, the, the state, owns the land. Mm. And I think pretty much everyone who owns land, in effect, leases it off the state. And I, mm. I gather that goes right back to the, mm. the foundation. I, I understand that. But, you know, I just, the times I've been to Israel, I've come away realizing that actually it's, you know, put it this way, when I lived in Clacton as the MP, if instead of the North Sea, there had been the Palestinian territory mm-hmm. running along the mm-hmm. coast of Essex mm-hmm. and people from there lobbing rockets across, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I can understand why Israeli opinion mm-hmm. is where it is. And, you know, I, I remember people saying that, you know, Israel should return to the 1967 boundaries or whatever it is. And then I remember actually being shown some gardens um, that backed on to what would be the 1967 boundary and realizing actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than I thought it was. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm in favor of national self-determination and therefore mm. I, I, I'm in favor of Palestinian people having a, a, a homeland. But I, I, you know, until, until that can be arranged in a way that doesn't come at the expense of, you know, security of the Jewish mm. state, I, I really don't see any way forward. Well, if you look at it, since 1948, progressively, Israel has extended its borders. And the land it keeps being and, attacked. Rights, it keeps and, the being rights, attacked. and the rights of the Palestinians have been progressively whittled away. But, so you can see... I mean, to be fair, Israel does periodically is attacked. And when it takes yes. land back, it generally does it defensively. And I think at Camp David, actually, Israel but, conceded uh, a huge amount of land back yeah, to... There's peace. nothing defensive about the illegal settlements currently on the West Bank. Effectively... Israel is surreptitiously annexing the West Bank, taking a huge chunk of territory that it previously agreed should be Palestinian. But it shut down settlements in Gaza. I remember the great hoo-ha. It shut down the settlements in Gaza in return for peace. And it it only gets rockets fired. I mean, it's kind of, it's lose-lose when they try and be reasonable. The trouble is, both sides have got the mentality, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And that leaves everyone blind. Everyone toothless. So, you know, we need a new, a whole new game plan. And I think, sometimes I think the very hardline reaction of the Israelis, if I didn't know better, I would think they were secret Hamas agents because their hardline reaction fuels the Islamist rejectionist on the other side. It plays straight into their hands. Mm. The majority of Palestinian people, I am certain, want peace and security. They want equality. I have met many Palestinians who say, We've got nothing against Jewish people. Of course, their leaderships have. Their leadership, many of their leaders have. But they, as ordinary Palestinians, mm-hmm. they don't harbour animosity towards Jewish yeah, people. They dislike the fact, the way in which but, their yeah. people have been treated. Yeah. I, and I, so, I, so the possibility for peace, yeah. I think, is there. And if I, I'll tell you, if I, was, if I was an Israeli leader, I'm never going to be, and <laughs> people would probably be horrified at the thought, I, w- I would do something, I would take a very big gamble. I would say... We're going to recognize a Palestinian state. We're going to recognize a Palestinian state uh, broadly within the 1967 borders. We are going to fund Palestinian schools, hospitals, roads, homes. That would be a game changer because. But Israel. Hang on. It would pull the rug out from under Hamas and Islamic Jihad and all the other religions. But Israel's done that. Israel, Israel said they were willing to recognize a Palestinian state, they were willing to make concessions. They've kick their own settlers out of Gaza and other places. 
It's kind of difficult to make peace with people who want to kill you, though, isn't it? I mean, when people are trying to literally drive you into the sea. Yeah, but what Israel has to do is to attach Palestinians from the extremists in charge and the terrorists. And the way you do that is by not playing into the extremist hands, by acting in, in excessive retaliatory ways, yeah. indiscriminate attacks upon guards, which have killed so many civilians. That is not the way to go. That just gives the ammunition and recruits more extremists. Mm -hmm. What you have to do is say, we are prepared to make a big gamble. Mm -hmm. We are going to speak to the Palestinian people over the heads of their leaders and present a new option, a new alternative, a new way forward. And then we can see how it goes. And if it, if it goes badly, then of course... Do you think there's a, a wider danger that foreign powers like Iran are now in effect engaged in a civil war within the Middle East? They, instead of Israel just dealing with the Palestinian people and their leadership and the tensions between the leadership and the different factions, you've now got proxy armies in effect on Israel's borders. And that, that, that's a game changer because Israel now can't make peace with its neighbors because mm. there are proxy armies there that have no interest in anything other than Israel's destruction. Mm. That is a problem, yeah, undoubtedly. And, and Iran is a very malevolent force. Yeah. Um, against its own people, first and yeah. foremost, but against neighbouring places. I mean, what, what, what the Iranian militias are doing in Syria, you know, aiding you know, the terror campaign of Assad and Putin, mm. uh, what they're behind the scenes doing to aid the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Yeah. Um, they are bad guys. Yeah. And no Democrat, no liberal person, no left-winger could possibly <laughs> support Iran or have anything other than hostility towards mm. its project, I which, mean, is, which is to, to, to leverage against Saudi and against Israel. I made a number of mistakes as an MP. Not, not often you'll hear a politician say that. One of the mistakes I made as an MP was appearing on something called Press TV, mm -hmm. which I, uh, was pointed out to me by someone who was a, a front organization for Iran. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered that Jeremy Corbyn, Comrade Corbyn, appeared on it routinely. But anyway, we won't, we won't, we won't, we won't dig up that. Very final question. You and I have spent the best part of an hour discussing issues where we probably don't agree. I, I hope I've kept my own views to myself because people are tuning in to listen to you. I, I think it's really important that people who don't agree you know, exchange ideas. Good ideas drive out bad ideas. No platforming, it seems to me, is invidious because it prevents people with different points of view coming to realise that actually they might share a perspective or actually they, they may disagree but for respectful reasons. You've had experience of not being no platform, haven't you? No, there were attempts. Right. But they did not succeed. Okay. How did you, you, you insisted on going ahead with the, the talk? Yeah. And what was it they were so terrified of you saying that might... I mean, I, I hope you've not, you've not triggered me too much, but <laughs> what, what were they terrified of you saying? Well, there were unsubstantial allegations uh, that I was a racist, that I was a transphobe. So on the transphobia thing, um, you know, I signed a letter. Uh, I what does it mean to be a transphobia? Does it, does it mean they, they honestly think you go around not liking transsexual people? I mean, what, well, the, what, the, is, what is it the, to be a transphobe? The, the issue of dispute was that I signed a letter um, saying that even people who are you know, critical of trans people should not be shut down unless they crossed a certain line. And so I was defending, it was a classic free speech argument. Okay. Um, I was not endorsing Jermaine Greer or others, uh, mm -hmm. but I was saying that uh, protest against them, by all means, mm -hmm. but don't try and shut them down. Yeah. Debate with them. Produce the counter evidence. Produce the counter evidence. Show yeah. why they're wrong. Yeah. 
And I think there's only probably three criterion or three instances where it's legitimate to shut down free speech. Mm -hmm. Firstly, if someone makes false damaging allegations, mm -hmm. like saying you're a paedophile or a tax fraudster or a wife rapist or whatever. Um, perhaps another instance would be um, sustained you know, threats, harassment or mm -hmm. menaces against someone. Or thirdly, inciting violence. Mm -hmm. I think on those grounds, mm -hmm. I think it is legitimate to restrict free speech because mm -hmm. those are abuses of free speech and mm -hmm. actually close down free speech yeah. because they create an atmosphere of intimidation. So, you know, I've defended Christian fundamentalist preachers who've said pretty nasty things about gay mm -hmm. people, not because I agree with them one iota, but because, you know, they haven't been abusive or threatening. Mm -hmm. They've just expressed an opinion. Mm -hmm. And I think the way to deal with that is by showing why they're wrong and why... Good from ideas, chase our bad ideas. Yeah, why, why from a Christian perspective, love and compassion should override prejudice. Peter, it's been a real pleasure to have you come along. I hope when we're north of 300,000 viewers, you'll come back and uh, we can talk some more. Thank you very much. Thank you.